G'day and welcome back to the Sachin Adam show where it's me and Adam's job or pretend job to interview inspirational figures that are combining the worlds of business and impact. And today we have someone extremely special on the show who's also a UCID alumni, which is special for our audience um, and has founded an organization that I think everyone listening would have heard of before. So today on our show, we've got Jack Manning Bancroft, who founded a remarkable organization called AIM, which essentially does mentoring um, and tutoring for Indigenous kids. And AIM is the biggest volunteer association in Australia. They've had over 15,000 mentees, over 5,000 um, student volunteers. And from our personal experience, it's a really awesome organization. Um, Sachin's currently doing AIM. I've done it before. And we felt that it's um, a remarkably um, impactful organization. So thanks for coming on today, Jack. Oh, good, guys. Yeah. So first thing we would love to ask you about is just what is your vision for the world? <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I think there's, there's just a few design things which we might not have knocked out of the park yet. I probably value the dollar a little bit too much in, in a lot of our economic models and that exchange rate kind of bounces exchanges of time or exchanges of knowledge or exchanges of opportunities and experiences a bit further down the queue and and it means that you end up with quite a significant dichotomy in terms of people who have have wealth and people that don't so i think that design sort of could be tweaked and there's different ways we can explore different economic models i think universal basic income is really interesting I think modern monetary theory is interesting, you know, with universal basic income, MLK was talking about it in his last book um, before he was assassinated. And I was lucky enough when I was in New York working on taking home globally over the last three to four years to end up randomly in the Upper West Side in an apartment for a tiny fundraiser for a presidential candidate named Andrew Yang. And there were like 20 people there. And it was so wacky and it's kind of standing back and listening to Yang talk about, you know, the top five employers in America will be eaten up by automation in the next 20 years. And, you know, that was sort of echoed by these cats, Frey and Osborne, who did this Oxford paper on uh, the future of employment and published it in 2013. And they said that over 40% of US jobs will be gone by automation in the next 20 years. So it's sort of, I think we have the opportunity to really design a different relationship with life. And, and it might be a relationship where work is not central, where we have a universal basic income, where a lot of the big tech firms have been taxed because they, you know, crack the code with robots and hopefully robots don't take control completely. But then there might be a very different life where we're going to university to learn and we're learning so we can live. Um, and then we're living and not just working, which could be a fascinating thing to be a part of. I think we're going to experience some version of that um, in the next sort of 50, 60 years. Yeah, that's awesome. Me and Andrew, uh, me and Adam are very much uh, fans of Yang's work. And I think that he's almost like, he's going to be, he's 20 years almost too early for the American public, but it's like what they need now. And I think that we're going to see big shifts in the next few years. And so Jack, your work kind of centers around very broadly around equality of opportunity. And that's what you're fascinated with solving. Um, I'd love if you can kind of speak to some of the equality of opportunity gaps that exist today in Australia, but also the, the broader world. Yeah, I think there's a, um, a reasonable base level that there's some people that are inside the margins within uh, Sydney, within New South Wales, within Australia, 
and then more globally across different continents and countries and and then there's people that sort of land outside the margins and that's for a number of reasons from race to geography to uh, historical discrimination and challenges often systemic uh, a lot of people who end up at the bottom of the pack have been the on the other side of colonialism and people coming in and taking away all of the land and the wealth and, and the opportunities and just claiming it as their own or on the other side of wars and so part of the balancing act is working out how do you try and rebalance the ledger a little bit and um, and hopefully try and get it to, to a place where it's, you know, anyone that's born feels like they have an equal opportunity at life. And in Australia, we've got, you know, gnarly stats about over-representation with Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people in um, juvenile justice and then in broader incarceration. And a lot of the stats that you might, you know, hear me pound about during the Close the Gap reports and whatnot, the stuff I really like is that there's, we've closed about five, six years ago, we closed the gap uh, in terms of the amount of medical students that were being um, trained who are Indigenous per capita to the non-Indigenous population, which is awesome. And, you know, when I was studying, there's a couple hundred Indigenous university students studying at the time who we all sort of gathered at Indigenous university games. And at the same time, there wouldn't have been more than 200 Aboriginal AFL players or rugby league players. So there's, I think there's a different generational stereotype starting to come through with our generations. First generation who haven't had you know, abject discrimination policy working against us. We, you know, up until... 92 with Marbo and then you know the apology coming through with Rad like there's some pretty base fundamental things that we've had to kind of work through and I, I really hope that the Uluru State from from the heart is picked up in the next sort of five to ten years and there is a voice to parliament we can kind of move through some of the structural design pieces so then you actually start to get into the work which is like all right we've done all this stuff now let's start working out how we balance the boardrooms and how we end up with you know pathways for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Prime Ministers and how you end up with a richer country, which, you know, when you, I was watching the Wallabies the other night for a little bit and um, they're wearing an Indigenous jersey. And I said to my partner, wouldn't it be cool if eventually we just have an Australian jersey that has Aboriginal designs on it? You're like, oh, that's just Australian. And I think we're still through this like maturation gook of this period of reconciliation and forgiveness and understanding and non-Indigenous people trying to build real relationships with Indigenous people, which has sort of been the heart of the design work with AIM of trying to go, Right, two potential pathways of non-Indigenous people broadly at university who are going to go and have jobs and work in you know, future powerful positions and a lot of kids on the other side of the tracks who might miss out. If we can engineer a bridge across, maybe that could be interesting. You could see some sort of trans, um, some, some different interactions and some different transactions happening in place. And so that's, that was sort of the heart of our work in the beginning and now that's scaled to be... Yeah, we're working in six different countries around the world, Uganda, South Africa, Nigeria, Zimbabwe. We're working with Af African-Australian kids in Melbourne, Indigenous kids in Australia, um, the foundation or base that we're sort of working off in America. And then we've just, in the last um, four to five months, sort of turbocharged that all into our own university. So we've opened our own university called Imagination University, which is a big move for us to then move from doing the stuff ourselves to then tra training people to... Um, take the tools and set it up themselves, which means potentially at Sydney University you could end up with 20 student AIM chapters, some working with recently migrated kids, some working with um, you know, young women, some working with people from different able backgrounds, some working with Indigenous kids and really starting to give the tools away so we can sort of scale up the change.
Yeah, that's some amazing work and some very significant problems. And so you've obviously dedicated your life to sort of service and helping equality of opportunity. And I think there's a lot of people um, that really care about those sort of social justice issues, but then they don't make it the sort of driving force of their life. And they um, often go into careers which do very, very different things. Why do you think personally you were able to sort of take on this challenge and make it your life's work? Like where, where did you get that sort of, that sort of fire from? I think I felt guilty and guilt's a pretty big motivator. I was sort of, you know, I've got fair skin. Um, you wouldn't pick me out of the crowd as being Aboriginal. I don't face the same discrimination as people with black skin in Australia or around the world. So I've had all the privileges afforded to me as someone who looks like a white guy. Um, and then I've got this experience inside of me, which is genetic and real and true of, you know, my grandfather having black skin and going fight, fighting in World War II for Australia and coming back and not being a citizen. And my mum being an Aboriginal female artist who's, you know, fought for, opportunities and had to sort of fight tooth and nail for all of her opportunities and then I kind of land in this spot where I'm like oh history says it's all cool to be Aboriginal and you know kid the teachers want me to play the didgeridoo in primary school and this is nice and yeah when I got an opportunity to go to Sydney University and got a scholarship and part of the scholarship was based on my Aboriginality and part of it was a broader sort of leadership story I was like man if I get this I've got to put something back and if I want to put anything back in my life like I want it to be big, but I really just wanted to make sure I didn't feel like I took my Aboriginality for a ride. And I think that service mentality of acknowledging, acknowledging opportunity, acknowledging privilege, which is so much of the conversation of this second wave of Black Lives Matter, um, you know, internationally and then locally as well. Like, let's acknowledge it. And then let's not freeze, let's then get to work. That's what Mandela was so good at, you know, coming out of Robben Island and going, I've got a vision as well. Like, let's get to work, let's get active. So I think the, the challenge is getting unstuck in that. You can end up really stuck in that sense of, oh, I want to do something, but I'm not sure where to go. And so I think being able to move through that and just start doing, and then it's addictive, man. Like, once you're doing it, it's like, oh, I was playing cricket at the time and trying to play cricket for Australia. And I was just like, how do I justify going and, bowling a ball at a stump or really trying to compete against someone who's batting being like, I hate you, I want to destroy you. No, it doesn't matter. And it's hard to, once you, once you start to work in meaningful places where you're working with someone's life, where you're trying to get up every day to try and change things, um, the rest of it kind of pales in significance a little bit, um, I found. And, and, then, and then everyone else's jobs are important. Sometimes you just need a job. You need someone who's making money to go home and, um, and look after their family. And it all... It all matters, but I think that, yeah, this sort of work is um, dangerously addictive. Yeah. Um, Jack, if you could have a billboard to every kind of 21-year-old to look at while they're driving on the highway who has this interest in making the world a better place, they're broadly aware of all these issues. They kind of identify with being socially progressive. But as Adam said, a lot of their career choices and their actions almost contradict it. What do you think that would be? Uh, more than a selfie. <laughs> You just got to, you, you, the, the danger for um, this generation, which I'm maybe at the, the, the top of like the next arc of um, this generation coming through, which you guys are smack bang in the middle of, so much opportunity and so, so much opportunity to be a jack of all trades if you do get an education, like really fascinating time and so much reinvention. And the part which has struck me about doing a sustained job, like, you know, I've been in this job for, I've been trying to organise change in this broad space of fighting, like working on equality for maybe 18 years. You know, at 17 at university, I was kind of organising concerts and setting up scholarships and just trying to do stuff. If you stick in a 
in a field of inquiry, you actually have a chance to unlock wisdom because you've, you've got something to compare to each year and got something to sort of benchmark off against. And I find like I've made so many mistakes along the way and I've you know, had so many illuminations of my character flaws and moments where I failed in leadership and moments where people who used to um, you know, really dig me then suddenly don't like me at all. Like, and you kind of have all these confronting moments. Like, Whoa, what do they do? How do they do that? And if I just jump from job to job every three years, I've got a pretty good opt-out. Uh, the job's a problem. Or oh, that's probably, you're not sort of comparing apples with apples. And so I think, um, you know, it, the dominant story is the dominant story until it's changed. And I, I, I always just, I hate that, that, that this generation is going to have 35 jobs. Well, until 25,000 people go, no, we don't want to do that. We want to, we want to dig into changing, transforming a school in a remote community. And we go, oh, I'm going to be a principal there for 20 years. And I'm going to buck the trend on, on, you know, the turnover of every two and a half years. I'm going to stay in this writing discipline. I'm going to, I'm going to go into a bank like, and there's people who have gone into wall street and gone actually tactically, if I go and make a billion dollars, I can do more with that billion dollars to create change. And if I'm a nonprofit um, entrepreneur, sort of scrapping around at the bottom of the pack, it all plays if you play a long game. And I think that um, that's the danger of, of quick opportunity of being told this narrative that everything's moving is we just end up with a bunch of surface skills and we never have depth, security, strength and wisdom. Like I know some shit now. Like I seriously know some stuff. And, and I, I was fronting during my 20s trying to be like, oh, how do I lead or how do I do this stuff? But once you acquire knowledge, you kind of can have a sense of security because you've been through a number of different experiences. So I think that's, that's part of the challenge, like to move past the picture into the novel, um, to really try and write a deep life story and, and to be engaged in long, slow work. Yeah, I think that's really good advice because that's sort of counterintuitive to a lot of the things we're hearing, like from other guests in our podcast. Like people are always saying like, do a job like every two to three years, like exit into different companies and industries and learn skills. But as you said, like the sort of impetus for like real change has been in an organization or institution for a long time and making that slow progressive change. And often, like you said, that Wall Street example, it might be doing something for a means to an end and then having that capital, whether it's money capital or social capital to try and affect change. And you mentioned that you sort of played the long game with AIM. Well, I mean, which is exactly what you did. And can you sort of provide a bit of color of how you're able to grow AIM from, from the ground up to an organization, which is now the largest volunteer organization in Australia and what you did to be able to grow it to what it is? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where uh, the, la the exact largest volunteer organization in Oz, but I think we are, we've, we've, we've helped lead the sort of biggest volunteer movement of university students. In okay, all right, university. Yes. But I... Look, I, I think part of the scale is, you know, you, it's nice when you have that urgency and that desperation. Like, it, there's this line from F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is the sign of a higher rate intelligence is to hold two conflicting thoughts at the same time and still function. Like, I'm so impatient and I wanted the ball and I wanted to be like the main guy. And I was like, maybe I want to be prime minister or maybe I want to be this. Like, I was studying, I was desperately studying all these leaders and trying to work out how to play the game, how to sort of, you know, build the best possible organisation. It was about being like number one, being the best and sort of borrowing from everywhere. And I sort of borrowed some of the athletic like stuff I'd learned about competition and growth and work ethic. And so I think fundamentally at the beginning, it was just like, all right, if we're going to do this thing, this has got to be better than Nike or better than whatever the benchmark organisation is full stop. It's not in just some pocket of 
the non-profit thing or not in some pocket of like the indigenous thing. Like, let's build the best organization. Let's build the most compelling movement. Let's make this a, you know, the coolest thing to be a part of on campus. And, and that, um, I think the bigness of ambition helped us never have, like the, the frame was never closed. Never, anytime anyone's tried to close the frame on AIM, uh, it's really, I mean, wanted to like sort of punch out of it. I don't think there's boxes, you kind of unbox your way out of it. So when people say, oh, you're a small startup with, you know, we had 200 kids we were working with and we're in Sydney and then it always sort of irk away. I'm like, not yet, we won't be, you know, we're going to be national, we're going to do this thing, we'll be a global organisation, blah, blah. And now I think we've reached this space, which is really gnarly, like 16 years in where, you know, we've gone back and forward. I've been back and forth, as I mentioned earlier, back and forward to New York over the last four years to sort of lead AIM globally and then get us rolling and try and crack New York and crack some of that big wealth that's around to really start to, again, move the dial in the long term. And I was just astounded watching the work near us where my partner was working out of um, Kaufman Studios in Queens. There was this exhibition uh, for Jim Henson's, it was a sort of permanent Jim Henson exhibition. And the Sesame Street shot out of Kaufman Studios as well where, yeah, my partner was filming a, a TV series there. And so I went and saw this exhibition from Jim, like, and the first time I walked in, I was like, oh man, what a body of work, so jealous. Um, and then over time was like, huh, 50 years. All right, you know, I learned two things from Jim. One, I think puppets are, um, are my God. I, I think they are the best storytelling device ever. And we've got, they're actually leading, um, I'll grab hope here. They're leading our, um, our university and there are professors moving forward. So this is Professor Hope. Um, hello. First puppet we've had on the podcast. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I'm Hope. Um, I'm the professor at Imagination University. <laughs> Who are you guys? <laughs> We're good, Professor Hope. Nice to meet you, Hope. What, uh, what's on, what's on the agenda today for class? Um, well, we're actually uh, going into a big shoot right now. So we're, we're creating a TV series about six professors on a quest to found a university to change the world. And that's what I'm working on. There's Professor Blue. He does, um, he's a professor of flipping the script. I do imagination. There's Professor Asterix. He's looking on hoodie economics, I think. Um, yeah, there's a few others. Energy's working on mentoring and you'll get to meet them all um, if you enroll in Imagination University next year and they might even make the TV screen one day. You have an amazing I, ambition, Hope. Amazing. <laughs> well, your imagination is your superpower. It's the beginning of all thought and it's really limitless. It's only as limited as you are. I've got to go. Bye. They do something amazing to us. They sort of take us out of... And, and our challenge with AIM was as we grew globally, it was like, you know, immediately in New York, you get called out on your aesthetic. So and sit down with black people, people of colour, and they go, well, you're a white guy, you don't get it. And I'm like, oh, okay, then I have to weave through the story. And it's the same thing in Australia at different stages. And once you're going to remove race and gender and what you look like, you get to dance with the ideas. And these guys are like, oh, I'm so pumped about what, we'll be able to, what we can do with them. And what Jim and Sesame Street have done, like they're the most cost-effective educational intervention full stop that the world's ever had. Like, amazing data, amazing research behind the work that they've done. Uh, and it took them 50 years. So now where, you know, if they had told me at 20, like, and people did, that it would take like 16 years to get established or something, uh, it feels so long and it sucks. You don't want to ever hear it. And so you try and survive just like with your short goals or things that keep you motivated. And now I'm at a different stage of my life at 34. I'm like, or 35, sorry. I'm like, actually, yeah, I might be able to hang around this joint for another 30 odd years or 35 years. If I do that, 
game on. Like, I reckon we'll, we'll do some interesting stuff. And, and if what we've done is just a pilot for that, then, then you get a shot at, um, at doing something system-wide. And so, as I said earlier, so much of it is an apprenticeship. You're just kind of learning and learning and learning. And think about my mum. My mum's been painting for almost 50 years. Like, she is like a clutch painter now. And she'd say that she's kind of just warming up. So you're, it's a long body of work, I reckon. Um, and I'm, I'm getting more at peace with that and more comfortable in the world of patience and balancing out that urgency that helps sort of get us here. Yeah, I think that's something that should we should really underline because as kind of ambitious university students, it's so easy to just think that life ends at 30. Like me and Adam have all these things we want to do before we're 30, like blah, 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 tick it off, do it. And building something across the long run, as you said, um, can really lead to meaningful change, um, which is something I think that narrative needs to be restrung. It's as you said. important to note that like universities don't tell us it at all. Like the yeah. sort of culture within universities, like as I said, it's jumping from thing to thing. Mm. It's about thinking in a very linear pathway rather than like, do you want to do something for 50 years? Yeah. Like, do you want to work on just one thing? Yeah, but I think there's also other like factors including that, like just the instant gratification, get off our mobile phones every day and just those short-term dopamine hits. I think we're almost wired to thinking that way to a certain degree. Oh, it's yeah. hard, man. Yeah, it's hard. And it's a, and it also, like the, the challenge, back to that F. Scott quote, like that, that urgency helped get aimed to here. And there's a Einstein line that you don't solve tomorrow's problems with the same level of thinking that got you to where you are today. So the gift of me before, like what, what me before did for me now is very different to what I want to do for the, the me in the future. And I think being able to think in those beats, like you can totally go for all the stuff you want to nail in your twenties because you've got the energy and you've got time and you can be quite selfish. Like I, I was so scared about falling in love. I was like, that is the only thing that can take me off achievement. Like I was sort of did the math and I'm like, actually I can work my butt off. I can hang out with people. But if I ever met a girl or a young, young woman, I just, go oh, have to hang out but can't fall in love like just can't do it i've got to do it and then <laughs> fear of losing control i think that challenge of like oh, i can control my destiny i can work my i can work harder i can achieve it's kind of quite a um hierarchical like climb the ladder you know a little bit maybe masculine energy sometimes and and then you can bounce you know opening up it's amazing like i've being loved and, and which I had in my twenties a couple of times, like deep, beautiful loves. And then they didn't work. And the learnings from a heartbreak are so huge. And they get they make you so much better for the time when hopefully you your next opportunity, which I'm in right now, and and, and it just makes you so much richer. Like you kind of get to feel everything and, and you get to you can front so much. Um, you know, especially for men a lot of the time, like so tight emotionally, you kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'm sweet, I'm sweet, I'm sweet. Um so I think that, yeah, having a tight control focus is good. And then knowing that you can muscle at a certain point and then you'll break. Uh, yeah. And then the question is, all right, well, do I want to plan for that and just know that's coming? And then I'm set myself my, you know, six months for depression. Or am I going to try and work out how to maybe feed a bit of different energy in along the way? And, um, and that's a challenge. I don't have an answer for it because I think you've still... It's still important to try and sprint that marathon so you can kind of get ahead of the pack. If you want to achieve knowledge, you can be really thirsty and really hungry. But then it's finding the time when you go from seventh gear back to three, back to one, up to 12. And, and those gear changes are, I think, how we learn how to pace a life. Yeah. Jack, you've kind of alluded to like your ego throughout. So you said like in your early days, that's what drove you a lot and you want to create this massive kind of 
empire almost that you're building now. Um, is there any parts along your way, along the journey where your ego has become too much and you've had to, because it seems like you've done a lot of spiritual reflection and introspection into what drives you and in what situations your personality is good and which, one, which ones there aren't. Is there any kind of um, takeaways you have from that experience? Yeah, I think, uh, I think like pride uh, is one, I think pride is one of the seven deadly sins. And it's so good. Like it's, it's it, to be like, I'm really proud. I'm, I'm really proud of work. I really want to do good work. Like I'm motivated to try and do, um, and, and at times like I wanted to do good work one, because I really like doing it. But then I also like someone going, you did good work. Like especially people I really respect in the, like in a tent. It's sort of, it's nice. It feels good. It feels good to be good at something. Uh, so I think that's probably the, the piece. Like I, I wanted to be, I felt like there was this voice inside of me being like, you know, when the school captain votes happened at high school, I didn't get school captain. I was like, I wish I could have been school captain. I would have been a good school captain. You know, I walked up to my um, PE teacher when I was 14 and said, who's the captain of the cricket team? And he said, oh, we don't know yet. I go, me? <laughs> so maybe the captain. And he kind of, like I was hungry for, I felt like I wanted to be out the front. And when I was sitting in rooms, I've almost just felt like looking around, I want someone else to lead and and if someone didn't I felt like I'd do a better job I just felt like I would, would jump up so I think there's a sort of there's a tension between um, the boldness to believe that you can uh, do something and it's a pretty it is a hugely audacious idea to get up and go yeah I can change the planet um, and to say that straight face to people like saying that in New York to this big audience and Chelsea peers like of some fancy people and the concert general and some people that are on my partner's TV show and like some bankers, blah, blah, blah. We're like, yeah, we can be a group of people that changes the planet because if it's not going to be us, then who? And if it's not going to be now, then when? Uh, and then you walk off and you're like, how the fuck am I going to do that? Um, and that's the balance, I think, like between bravery of ambition and over time, I think that bravery of ambition um, I was, I was really defensive in the pride and now I'm, I think I'm getting better at being able to, I'm, I'm trying to release myself from reputation, uh, from, from opinion, uh, from instant judgment and really trying to focus on the body of work and let that be enough. And, um, and it's hard, but that's sort of the, yeah, where I think I'm kind of working towards at the moment. Mm. Jack, do you ever like sit back and sort of think or feel that like you've made it? and that you've sort of achieved what you wanted to achieve and achieve your dreams? Because like, you're obviously really hungry and you're passionate about what you do, but do you sit back and be like, yeah, I've done this, or is it just constant more hunger? Yeah, like I think I, think I, was, dri I was driving along just to come here to, to record this and I was 10 minutes late. And uh, as I was driving, I was like, yeah, sick. I think, I can like, I think I'm in retirement or something. I think I'm in a different phase now. The thing that had haunted me with AIM was that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the potential frame for it to be its um, its best possible thing or have its most possible impact. And I'm so pumped about Imagination University. It's just like, I can see it. I can see how it's going to, you know, we've got courses for teachers to teach with imagination. It means now every school's up for grabs that can take the tools that we've designed and anywhere in remote Australia, anywhere in Uganda, anywhere around the world. Um, we've got tools, a, a course for executives that want to try and level the playing field to set up a co-CEO for a marginalised kid. We've got courses for high school kids that want to be entrepreneurs. We've got courses for any university student that wants to start an AIM student chapter and be an imagination president can enrol. And the other part, which is cool, is that if there's anyone at Sydney University or anyone at any university or anyone anywhere that wants to take on a project for change, 
they can use our university as an architecture to do that and have a community and village to be a part of it. So I'm like, oh, sweet. That's radical, you know, and on the clothing stuff, we want to try and build the world's most meaningful hoodie. And I've been building our hoodie for a while and we've now got, you know, really great people who've been in the fashion world before, like Dan Single, who founded um, Subi Jeans, like he's our creative director and we've got good friends locally and globally. And it, we can see how we can, there's a pathway to do something really meaningful. And, and then in story, which I think we call Stardust, we sort of got the university you know, we've got these Stardust projects, which I maybe is like a Google X or whatnot. Um, and that's a space where I'm really excited about playing because we get to take the elements and then try and explode it and let everyone pick up the stories or what they, they will from it. And so I, I think I feel now, um, I found out like earlier in the year that in one of the fancy Milan fashion groups with a big global name uh, was they had their two hour like big ideas session in Milan and half an hour they're talking about a name hoodie. And I was like, how did that happen? Um, and so I think part of what I need to do now, what I'm trying to practice, is, but they'll come back to you. So knowing your own worth and waiting and, and seeing what happens is, uh, yeah, is where I reckon I am now, man. Like just, I, I think I'm quite content. And, and what's cool as well is the organisation. I'm not the CEO anymore. During this year, we got rid of the CEO role and we've created a different sort of, decentralized structure which sort of runs on more of a cellular design model with multiple leaders and self-ownership around like a performance and everything and so i'm kind of becoming a little bit more like the gardener like i can just sit out to the side and if i'm helpful you know i work on our design stuff but really there's fantastic people really talented people skilled people in areas much better than me great architecture and um now that can go and play and i think the other part which is really exhausting is when you try and change things you you feel like the weight you feel the whole weight of the world on you so every time i'd read a guardian article or listen to the news or something i'd be like oh man how do i solve climate change or how do i do that or oh my gosh what am i going to do about that or and just probably the last couple of months i've sort of taken a beat and gone same way with aim there's plenty of seeds planted if i can be helpful for people to work on projects I think I've done, I'm awfully applaud if someone else solves 10 problems around climate change. Like I don't have to feel like I have to do everything. And that, that's like, not, there's no work in that, you know, like there's no notebook, there's no pathway, there's no course. It's just literally a psychological switch of going, I don't have to be responsible for everything or control everything, which I think that is feeling quite nice to, to chill out a bit more. Yeah, that's incredible. And you speak, um, with Imagination Factory, you have these kind of broad goals by 2023. And obviously your three pillars are imagination, are rocket and story. Could you kind of um, dive a bit deeper into the blueprint? And before I also want to say, I noticed that you are um, the lead designer and some of the design or everything I've seen is absolutely incredible. Um, I think you're really building something that the education world has never seen before. Um, I don't know, we're trying. Yeah, I, and, and the fun thing about that website is that still in draft. So we've got a design rule that we're always drafting. So um, that, that website's out of date, which is great. So we've got, we've kind of landed in two worlds. We've landed on Imagination University being this, um, this sort of core world that we're going to work on. Google's a reasonable comparison. That's our search engine. That's the place where we just sort of set and forget. People come in, we get the chance for, you know, there's been 160 odd university students express interest in being, in starting running student chapters. So that's 16,000 kids that could have mentoring in a year. And as you scale that up, it's got all sort of 
a targeted focus to try and solve the problem of education inequality. And then where Rocket and Story, we've kind of fused together to just create this form called Stardust Projects, which is, again, makes the organisation quite simple to manage. We, the university we support, and then our team, in terms of our staffing structure, we have an engagement team that go out and help give people the opportunities to enrol in the university. We have a design team, then we have an impact team. And then we have sort of some HR support that, that sort of helps around that and finance and stuff. So, yeah, getting to that place where we can kind of get it all into a distilled one pager has been cool. And uh, with Stardust Projects, I think it's, you know, that's what what Nike as a storytelling group is has been really remarkable at is all these kids are wanting to be like Michael Jordan. And I, I would love kids to want to be mentors, to want to have values of supporting each other and, and be role models and seeing knowledge as the coolest thing and deeper thinking and time and um, and connecting to people who are, who are struggling and, and giving them knowledge for free uh, because it's an, it's the right thing to do. And so I think that's our that's our body of work to help make mentoring sort of you know the 21st century celebrity and and, and play in that space and work on how Stardust projects can kind of do that. And yeah, for they're, they're the play areas and then with design it's just um yeah we've got we i don't know i just like doing heap i like heaps of color and heaps of energy and heaps of stuff and um and we've got a good design team now of people that can that have got really rich ideas and we've borrowed from mit media labs and created our own design sort of brain frame that our team can work off and so a lot of the things that the challenge I think when you're in that leadership role is trying to create sort of repeatable frames and then freedom within the framework where you can get fantastic people to then bring that to life. So cool. I was wondering what are the main skills and ideas that you want to be teaching people with this imagination um, program? Yeah, there's, there's sort of six knowledge areas that we reckon we've kind of cracked the code on for the university. So imagination is one of them. And we think imagination is the beginning of all thought. And we actually think it's a muscle that can be trained. So Professor Hope's um, in the process of, yeah, you, um, of writing a Professor Hope's imagination cookbook. So we're trying to codify it into ingredients that you can actually break down. So one of the ingredients in Professor Hope's cookbook is this idea of a yes and attitude, which is used in theatre sports and a lot of improv training for people in theatre that when someone offers you an idea, uh, you say yes and to it, you try and build on it. You don't immediately critique it and try and pull it down. And when you're in a, in a world of sort of gooping out, um, you know, when a butterfly becomes a butterfly, it's a caterpillar first, goes into uh, the cocoon and then gets sort of swarmed and becomes this Imagicel's world. And then it goes, eventually becomes a butterfly. A birthing an idea is like, those it's those imagine cells it's like giving birth to a um a little being and when you bring out a baby in the world they're so vulnerable like they're, they're in their fourth trimester for the first three months in the world and, and they require cuddling and love and holding and and when new ideas come out they are well and truly in draft stage they're so vulnerable and so working out how we actually receive that and support that and, and build that out is really important so yeah we're kind of we're digging into the elements under these knowledge fields of imagination, mentoring, um, which we think is being the ultimate citizen and looking at that as a role modeling device for civil society. And then looking at how do you organize change? So I've just finished writing a, a book on 101 lessons on organizing change, uh, which Professor Lionel Korn uh, will be overseeing that discipline area. And then we've got building bridges, you know, how do you work across black, white, gender, nations, locations, uh, and then hoodie economics uh, is one of the frames, which is this idea of what we've seen, you know, you guys being mentors and 
yeah, I think this year we had 7,000 expression of interest for mentors. So maybe there might've been 12,000, you know, mentors around the world. What happens when people volunteer their time and their knowledge and opportunities and that exchange happens before cash and cash sits a bit further down. And then the final knowledge area is on flipping the script. So when we tell ourselves a dominant narrative, when you say the Aboriginal kid is disadvantaged, um, when you accept the premise, then we all sort of bind this self-fulfilling stereotype. Um, when you say that all privileged people, which I did at Paul's college, I just sort of was like, got so angry at the Paul's boys for a couple of years. They all, all privileged people are stuffed. Um, then you, you sort of start to build this cast around what people will permanently be. You build this sort of self-fulfilling sort of structure around them. And instead, if we can flip the script and take people from where they are and where they can go to acknowledge the past, but really look on, you know, saying we all have the ability to write the next chapter. We're all sort of storytellers. Then it becomes really interesting. And so they're the discipline areas that we're building tools around and lesson plans and different things for, uh, for all the courses to get to work. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think a lot of the reasons for those stereotypes or identities is it makes it easier to like navigate the complexity of the world because everything is almost a gray area, right? And if we give things convenient black and white labels, for example, all Paul's boys are rich snobs, then um, it makes us easier. It makes it easier to make sense of the world, which is something as I've gotten older, I've kind of started to realize more. Uh, Jack, you, you've kind of alluded to a number of books and um, figures that have inspired you throughout. I was wondering if there's any kind of um, books or podcasts or any figures that have taught you a lot of leadership lessons. And then after that, do you have any other interests and hobbies or do you just not get any time? Yeah, I think there's a couple. The thought, uh, there's a cool, thought, a cool podcast called Philosophize This, which I really like. And at Sydney Uni, philosophy was probably the the real game changer of, of a learning experience where I was like, whoa, you can think about thinking. All right, this, this is interesting. And then I've just been lost in that forever, always trying to question the frames or understand what a good life looks like and, um, and try and borrow from all different places to learn from that. And so I think like, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, some pretty interesting foundational stuff around, um, yeah, thinking about democracy, thinking about story, thinking about the worth of a life, some pretty significant flaws as they're white men and there are a lot of people that weren't in their, their view of society, but as within that, still acknowledging their bias, their complexity, and, um, and then not having an ad hominem argument where we just sort of attack their character because of their deficits, but actually look at the ideas. There's some interesting weight and ideas in there. There's like St. Augustine, who's just sort of come across, who's a pretty interesting thinker who, uh, you know, move from being a philosopher more broadly to then entering sort of theology and MLK was sort of, Martin Luther King was really interested in, in his work and he questions like time, like what is the past, what is the present, what is the future, what are these terms, he, he says that you can't sort of buy these ideas but if you say that we have memories, we have attention and we have expectations, he's like I could probably get on board with, with those three frames and so I really like people who are exploring how to think about thinking and then how to, how to act. And uh, probably the top of the reading list still is um, Long Walk to Freedom by Mandela. And then I think more recently I've been sort of digging into economics and really trying to understand um, Yang's work, understand, you know, MLK's last book, uh, you know, thinking about universal basic income, trying to think about what does the world look like in, um, in the next phase. And yeah, for fun, uh, like I've just been doing it for an hour and a half or two hours when I had lunch with my partner and my daughter and then 
eating an ice cream with my daughter, who's two and a half, and her just going, yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. I'm so excited as you open the ice cream is the best. It's sort of as close as you, I've been able to get to like a really full life experience as us as a gang. Uh, and then I paint now. I've sort of started painting in the last 12 months and that's helped me get some of that chaotic emotional energy that you can wear um, and be a conductor of when you're in this world. And so I've just got to you know, kind of come pretty bonkers. I've done like 200 paintings in a year and got a studio space and that's kind of become a world where I can, I don't have to explain myself. I can just throw paint at stuff. And so that's where I'm playing. Awesome. I also want to know, are you a spiritual person, Jack? And if so, what does spirituality potentially mean for you? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's beings all around us. I, um, you know, I'm constantly learning more about my originality and learning more about like learning different Bunjilung language words and learning more stories and, uh, and learning about people that have sort of come before. There's some areas in Australia I just sort of walk onto the land and I'm like, whoa, something happened here or there's some energy here. So I think, uh, I think with that, mum always said to me, like when you walk into places, walk into different nations in Australia, if you can just say, hey, to the old people, like I'm, I'm not here to do any harm. I want to leave the place like better than when I entered it. Um, you know, if you can look after me, that'd be awesome. And that's kind of what I think the role of, of a spiritual life synced in with a moral life is, is just try and leave it better than when you entered it. Just acknowledge that there's been life before, that there's other creatures, that uh, I think other animals have feelings and uh, some of them might even be able to think and just sort of acknowledging, acknowledging the depth of a, of a universal experience and how much time's happened uh, from right back from the stardust that sort of birthed this wacky planet that we're on. I think that, yeah, it's hard. It's hard not to, I'm probably in the middle of just like there's something going on, but I don't know what to put my finger on it. But I like to, I want to be able to learn from all different places, from different religions, different thinkers, and be open to meeting and talking to anyone. But I struggle to follow one distinct script. I like being yeah. popular. Yeah. Wow. You seem insanely curious about so many different things. Yeah. Is, it, is it ever like too much? Like you get into a rabbit hole of researching something, you forget about your work or? Yeah, it's definitely too much. It's, I think uh, <laughs> there's, thinking is scary uh, and it's the role like the role of artists of philosophers of thinkers of writers like we go on scary adventures um, and I think you know to an earlier point around everything can kind of be questioned one of these philosophers I've been listening to lately his advice was look everybody should follow the best form of religion at that time and then the philosophers should try and be open to what the next form of, you know, great religion is that we need some sort of order uh, and we need some structure and we need a sense that leaders are not as fragile as they are. We need a sense that it's okay, that in the face of, you know, imminent death all around us, that, that we've got some sort of control in this wacky universe. And then we require our artists, our writers, our storytellers, our thinkers, our philosophers, our designers to walk out into places, you know, or to go out swimming um, right into the ocean without any buoys, without any support and just going, I'm swimming out here because I need to find out what's out here uh, for us. And, and that is really freaky because you're skydiving without a parachute. And in those moments, you, you, I think you're sort of, you're on the cusp of insanity when you're dancing with, with like really complex questioning of ideas and, and you, you kind of making sure you've got 
something to pull you back is is important or something to now Oscar Wilde's got a line that life's too important to be taken seriously. I think getting having your sort of shoot that you can pull to get out because otherwise it can it is it is really dangerous work and you see so many artists that commit suicide and so many big thinkers that we lose too early and so many people that that aren't happy throughout their whole life. There's very few civil rights activists that get to the end of the road and you're like, oh, what a chirpy like Willy Wonka character. It just doesn't really happen. So that that I think is is the challenge. You go out into these empty, crazy spaces where there are no rules, and then coming back to reality um, and trying to stay sane. Wow. Do you um have you ever dabbled with meditation? Like you mentioned, art is kind of a, a way out for you. I was wondering if meditation's been helpful. Yeah, it's been cool. Sort of in different in different stages, like I. Yeah, there's a couple couple of apps which have like been really helpful. That Headspace app's been cool, and then uh, we met the guy, one of the guys who started Insight Timer, and that's been cool as well to sort of you know, just drop in for ten minutes. I lie in my bed at the end of the day and not drink a beer is the first transition to try and be like, how do I do something which just changes the the neural pathway energy that I'm on. Uh, playing guitar has been really helpful for me as a meditative practice. Art is definitely a meditative practice. Like I go in the studio put tunes on and just throw pain everywhere and it sort of helps me go okay energy out close the studio door walk away uh learning surf getting in the ocean is a meditative experience for me i think anything that helps you transition from the state of being that you're in to the to a different state of being which isn't a drug um is got to be like healthy for most of the time and then i've never taken any like really any other drugs to drink alcohol as sort of a, a tool that i've used at times under pressure to go like I'm drinking wine tonight or I want to drink so I can't think. Um, and sometimes I will do that consciously knowing it's dangerous and then trying to be aware that I don't get addicted um, into, into that vice. So yeah, we you need to get off somehow the train line that you're on and med- meditation has been really healthy. And then there's just sometimes I'm like this 10 minute app or this 30 minute app or this one minute meditation, one hour meditation just ain't going to do it. Um, yoga's cool. Pilates has been great. I used to bowl leg spin, which is, just made me just sit there and look at a spot, kicking goals and footy I used to do. So it's nice to have it. I like being active in meditation, I think, um, as well as being able to balance it and some of the passive stuff. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've loved just sort of hearing about like your train of thought and what influences you. I think it's very, very different to like sort of what we've heard, but it's inspiring. It's really cool. Cool, yeah. Thank you for everything you do and thanks for having a chat with us today. All good, guys. Good on you for inquiring and and digging into what's going on and yeah good luck with everything you want to do yeah really appreciate it thanks jack that was awesome awesome.